something that is, for those of you who've been practicing and studying for a while, it's usually a quite daunting um, topic of uh, discussion in the Dharma. But I'm hoping that the way we talk about it will help in understanding because it's, uh, it's the kind of jewel in the Buddha's teaching. And that's the, um, the teaching on what is called in the Pali language, anatta, which means uh, without a core self. And usually what happens is when we start to talk about this teaching, um, everybody panics because it sounds like we're saying, you don't exist. But what we're going to talk about is not whether we exist or not, because we know we can pinch ourselves and we'll feel it, and you know that we've had several birthdays, and we have a mother and a father and sisters and brothers, or, or we don't, um, and we feel different because of that, or um, you know we have um, certain characteristics of, of identity that make us feel somewhat unique and different from everybody else. And certainly as people of color, we know that feeling. So it's not, a, it's not a teaching about that, but more a teaching about looking deeply to see what this process of I am is. And I want to teach it because um, I want you to know uh, that this understanding of who we are and how we are in this world is the very basis of our practice. And that this looking into what's going on when I say I or I am is going to be the basis of the transformation that we seek when we practice Dharma. Oops. So there's a poem that I'd like to read to you. It's by Octavio Paz. It's a poem that really reminds us that um, we tend to, how hard we tend to be on ourselves. And that the judging and sentencing that we do, the perpetual waiting and loneliness uh, is created through that judging and sentencing. But he says, even after we've forgotten the names and the places of our birth, the heart still has the capacity to open again and to love. So it's called After. After chopping off all the arms that reached out to me, 
after boarding up all the windows and the doors, after filling all the pits with poisoned water, after building my house on the rock of a no, inaccessible to flattery and fear, after hurling handfuls of silence and monosyllables of scorn at my loves, after forgetting my name and the name of my birthplace and the name of my race, after judging and sentencing myself to perpetual waiting and perpetual loneliness, I heard against the stones of my dungeon of syllogisms the humid, tender, insistent onset of spring. And I wanted to read that to you so that you have a context in which to listen to this hopefully short talk. that listening to Dharma is not so much because we want to be convinced of a particular view of life or that we want to know how it is. We want somebody else to tell us, the Buddha or a teacher or whoever else, how it is, to tell us what opinion we should have about life but that it's actually uh, a pointing to, a pointing to a place to look, or places to look. And perhaps even uh, pointing to how to look. Because we tend to uh, establish habits of mind, habits of body too, we tend to establish habits in how we relate to the world, how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to others, how we relate to our experiences, and how we relate to the circumstances of our lives. We establish those habits, and then once they've been established, we tend to just kind of wear in that groove. Do you know what I mean? You know... We get on automatic pilot and we're like, we don't even think about it anymore. And then we forget what the assumptions were that led us to establish those habits and we don't re-examine them. And and I, I noticed this even in our governing New York Insight that we tend to establish ways of governing, ways of the organization being because we respond to how things are at a particular time and then things change but we don't notice it so we just keep going you know, the same way we went five years ago or ten years ago when things were totally different do you know what I'm talking about? right? Because we do this in our lives, right? Something happens, we make an adjustment, or we respond to that thing that happens, and it works out pretty well. 
right? So we start to just do that every time something happens. That's how we respond. But the next event may not be, may not have the same appropriate response. It may have a completely different appropriate response. But because we've established that habit, we just keep going. And then we hit a wall and we haven't got a clue as to how that happened, right? But it happened because we have a basic assumption. And that basic assumption is that we are a particular way. And that can be established at any stage of our lives. It can be established at a time when we're one or two or five or 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 or 40 or 60. It can be established at any time when something significant happens. Somebody says something that really penetrates or a situation happens that's traumatic. Or people respond to us in a particular way. And because we want to protect the organism, we say, well, we're going we're gonna to do this or we're going to do that. We're going to protect the organism. And then before we know it, we're protecting the organism even when it's not under attack or under fire. I was at a yoga retreat um, this last week, which was wonderful. And I, I've been going to this yoga retreat for several years, every year for a week. And I took a friend with a, a, another uh, Buddhist teacher this time, who was, uh, used to be a monk and is no longer a monk. But in his, even his previous life before he was a monk, he was a wrestler. Yeah, wrestlers become Buddhists. And um, he got some injury in his shoulder. And um, he realized this just this one week, what we did is three hours of yoga every day. So it was like 18 hours of yoga for the week. He realized just with 18 hours of yoga, that he had been, and he got this injury in college, right? And he's now in his 50s. That since he had that injury in college, so it's got to be about 30 years, he's been protecting that shoulder. And that with this 18 hours of yoga, the shoulder started to come alive again. He had actually had pins in the other shoulder that he'd also harmed, but he decided not to have a an operation in the left shoulder, but he was protecting it the whole time, that he had gotten this habit of wearing his shoulder this way so that he could protect it, right? And by the end of the week, his shoulder was back. After 30 years. So I thought, well, look at that, right? How we even with this idea of a self that moves through life unchanged and unchanging 
that once we look at it in a total in a different way, everything can shift. And he was doing headstands and shoulder stands by the end of the week on the shoulder. So what it said to me is that everything is open to question. And everything being open to question is in a way the definition of freedom. Because what it means is in every single moment we have the ability to be new. And everything that we do in practice shows us that. Every time we sit down and practice meditation, every time we come back to the breath, every time we hear that instruction and we follow it, we are teaching ourselves that it's possible to start fresh. For things to be completely new. So we have this idea in the beginning so let me just finish a thought. So the, so, the, so the understanding then is that when we hear these teachings, the teachings are pointing us to a way of looking, a way of seeing so that when we are constantly looking in every moment at who we are, how we are in this moment, we are allowing this freedom to be new, to be um, free of any habits that we have established in the past that no longer serve us. That we are no longer enslaved to habits that were established in response probably quite legitimately to situations in the past that no longer hold sway over our lives and are no longer necessary to be responded to. But that we have the ability in this moment to see exactly what is happening and to determine without reference to habit, to determine over and over again in every moment, how to respond appropriately in a new way so that we're not caught by the habits that we've established in the past. How free is that? Is this a definition of freedom? Or do we want the definition of freedom to be that we have a def- uh, the freedom to, be, to do what we want to do? Right? Because that's usually, especially in our American culture, what we think of as freedom is don't give me any boundaries. Right? I just want to do what I want to do. Thank you very much. But, but if we do that, then we're, we're acting according to habits that have been established when a situation was different. So the... So the teachings are pointing us to what we can see in practice, not to grabbing onto an opinion or a view that's going to last forever. 
right? Or that's going to be the right view. That's going to be the right way to look at things. But actually, to understand that in every moment, everything is changing. Everything is shifting. Everything is new in every single moment. And that's what our practice shows us when we are looking at the breath. That every breath is a totally new experience. It may appear to be the same as it was a second ago or ten seconds ago or a minute ago, but in actuality, it's a completely new breath. Why is it a new breath? Because as we send out the carbon dioxide, then it's taken in by you know, the bodies in different proportions and different rhythms and different ways, and it's sent back to us as oxygen in, again, different ways, different volumes, etc. So that every breath, so that this breath may be the breath that Napoleon shared, or it may be the breath that Martin Luther King shared, or it may be the breath that, you know, you name it, your brother or your sister or your mother or your father shared hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, just coming back to you now. And so, in every moment, we're changing, we're shifting. So, anatta is this, this idea of not-self that you may have heard about is pointing us to that. That although there is a view that, you know, this is Gina, and she's had a number of birthdays, and um, she has a mother and a father who, you know, are, who are now passed away, but, you know, were stable, and she's got, you know, two sisters, and she's got a, a disc- you know, we can all have a description of who we are. That that idea of permanence is a complete illusion. That uh, just like when we watch a movie and we see in that movie, you know, we think, oh, this is, um, you know, uh, whoever the actor is, and but he becomes the character and that's who the actress is and she becomes the character and we're watching the movie and we're seeing the characters and we're thinking, we're really believing in the character, right? We're believing that this character is doing that to that character and we get totally absorbed in it and we completely forget that if we look behind us, there's a projector, well, used to be anyway, in the old days, that's throwing light onto a screen and that there are... um, there are uh, very fast movements of frames happening that look like solid uh, human beings actually doing certain things to each other and saying certain things to each other. But what is actually happening is their frames happening really fast. But our perception isn't fast enough to keep up with it, and so we see it as solid. That's how, our, that's how our life is. Is that in every moment, things are happening really fast. We are shifting and changing. As we sit here, it's happening. It's happening. The, the cells of the body are d- 
disappearing and appearing. They're, everything is moving. The, the blood is coursing. Everything is happening really quickly. And our perception doesn't see it. So it feels like the person who sat down at 7 o'clock is the same person who's sitting here now. Not true. Totally different. First of all, you've heard a bunch of words, right? So you're totally different. You're completely different than who who sat down at 7 o'clock. You did some meditation. That meditation shifted the chemistry in the brain. It shifted your perception. It shifted your feelings. It shifted your body. We did the yoga. The body got shifted. Our consciousness is shifting. Our ideas about what's happening here are shifting. Everything is shifting as we sit here. And yet there's this idea, as I'm sitting here looking out at all of you, that, you know, Paul is sitting there, Dan's sitting there, Nakaway sitting there. But what I call Nakaway or Paul or Dan or anybody else is shifting and changing. So it's not the same person who walked into this, into this room. Now, it doesn't mean you don't exist, right? Because you, you know, unless I'm totally crazy, I see a room full of people sitting in front of me, right? <laughs> so I know you exist. I know you exist. And I know there's, there's a personhood there. But what the teachings point us to is this understanding of the impermanence of all things. And that because things are impermanent and they're shifting and changing without our saying shift and change, that we're out of control of it. That we have absolutely no control over the aging process. We have no control over what the body is going to do in the next moment. You know, the mind may have some commands that says, get up, sit down, do this, do that. You know, now we're going to work, now we're going to school, now we're going to do this, now we're going to do that. But what happens? No control. None. So if we, if, if we were our body, we'd be able to say, body don't age. Right? And God knows they've been trying, right? Ponce de Leon and all of those people have been trying to find that fountain of youth for I don't know how many years. Good luck with that. Right? No wrinkles. Yeah. Okay. So we have no control over the body. We have no way of telling it what to do and how to do it. It's shifting and changing. And yet, uh, here we are. So, what can change? What can change is our intentions. What can change is our relationship to experience as it comes to us. Right? The mind can actually help us to do that. But this understanding of this uh, inexorable change is a key understanding that allows us to know that all of the habits that we have established, all of the ways that we have 
decided to be in the past aren't necessarily what will rule us, what needs to rule us in the next moment. That um, this, the, the other piece of it is that we are not developing in a linear um, kind of step-by-step way, but that actually who we are is a field of experience. That we are, in a way, a mandala of form and feelings and perception and consciousness and ideas and thoughts. And this mandala exists not in isolation, but in a way, in, in, um, in a beautiful dance with the whole field of humanity. So our conception or our perception about ourselves as these individuals moving through life, unchanging, unyielding, slavishly um, bound to our um, habits of or ideas about who we are and how we are is completely false. And what it tells us is that we should look, we can look at how we are. So when you're meditating, Your meditation isn't meant to be just a little bit of relaxation, which of course comes, and it's beautiful. But is actually a way of training the mind to begin to see, to really understand deeply, who am I in this universe? And to know that this this web that's created by this constant flow of shifting and changing and moving and shifting and uh, um, experiencing that we are constantly affecting it so that uh, if we stay in a small world of oh this is who I am and this is you know how I have to be and this is who I've always been or this is you know, what I need to protect. You know, I need to protect this, this little organism that, you know, is delicate or, you know, can't take this or can't take that. That if we, if we stay in that shell, that the, the potential and the growth and the possibilities that are present in this flow of life can never be realized. So look at a... Look at a waterfall from, a, from afar and notice how you think this waterfall is just like a, a, a fall of water that is just never shifting or changing. And then really start to move in close and see it. Or Heraclitus, the, the uh, Greek philosopher, years ago said you can never, thousands of years ago said, you can never step into the same river twice. Right? We look at a river and we say, oh, that's the Hudson. Well, you know, that's just a name. Right? But actually, if you look at the Hudson River, 
it's, it's not one thing. It's a, it's a shifting, moving, changing, dynamic process of tides and mud and pollution and, you know, all kinds of things going on, right? And waves and, you know, boats come and create waves and the river is shifting and changing. We are just like that. We are not separate from the world. So this ability to shift and change and move in some ways is great news. In other ways, it's not such great news, right? Because sometimes we want things to stay exactly. You know, we we get a moment of happiness and we think, ah, it shouldn't change, right? It should always be like this. It should always be a warm, sunny summer day in which I've got this great cone of chocolate ice cream that feels, that tastes really great. You know, my relationship is good. I've got a good job. Everything's great. It shouldn't change, right? And then you go home and you get a phone call and everything changes. So so what are we going to do? What are we going to do with life? that is like that, that's constantly shifting and changing. So we want what we want, we get it, and then we lose it. We're bummed. We want what we want, we don't get it, we're bummed. Right? We want what we want, we get something else, we're bummed. Right? So, so what the Buddha called all of this is the three marks of existence. That there's impermanence. That the, that we're, the world and life are constantly moving and shifting and changing. And that because of this impermanence, there is this understanding that there is no core self. There's no little puppeteer inside that's permanent, that's, you know, um, directing our life, right? It's just this, uh, we're just a dynamic process. That's part of impermanence. And that because of that, we suffer. So what, what's the, what's the, um, what's the cure? It's not that we want, um, it's not that we want suffering, we're going to make suffering uh, less, or we're going to make suffering, we're going to make things a little bit more pleasant so that we can stop suffering, because we're not, we, we can't control it. We, we, you know, this, this anatta, this not-self, puts us out of control. But what we're going to do is we're going to understand how things are through our practice, not because we're mentating about it, not because I said so or the Buddha said so, but because we're going to look and we're going to see, oh, this is how it is. Right? And then when we can see this is how it is, then we're going to understand what it is about the way things are that makes us suffer. And what it is is our grasping at wanting it to be some other way. The mind constantly wants things to be some other way. Constantly. If it's hot, we want it to be a little cooler. If it's cool, we want it to be a little hotter. 
right? If we're happy, we want it to continue. If we're unhappy, we want it to stop. We, we can't, like, rest. So that's the unsatisfactoriness. It's like, because things are moving and changing and shifting, we're like, we can't, we want to grasp it. We want it to be, we want it to stay, but it can't stay. So the answer to the suffering of impermanence and anatta is not getting what we want, because good luck with that. But it's actually understanding our relationship to the way it is and seeing if that can shift. Seeing if we can actually understand the cause of our suffering, which comes because of our relationship to these marks of existence. And by understanding the cause, letting go of the cause. And that's when it ceases. It ceases not because we actually wind up figuring out a way to move all the the pieces on the board so that we get what we want and we get how we want it, but that we actually understand the mind, the way the mind relates to these marks of existence. And in understanding that, seeing if that can shift. So when you're looking at, when you're sitting, ask yourself, who am I? And when you ask yourself who you are, you know, the usual answers will come. I'm a woman, I'm a man, I'm a person of color, I'm a, you know, Latino, I'm a gay person, I'm a straight person, I'm a wife, I'm a husband, I'm a child, I'm a sister, I'm a brother, I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a this. Is that always, is that all of who you are? And how is that? Is that permanent? If your mother dies, are you still a child? If you get divorced, are you still a wife or a husband? So then what's here? What's possible? So when you're practicing and when you're going through your life, begin to see how you are in the world. Begin to look to see if there's anything that's permanent. And if you find anything that's permanent, let me know. I really want to know. But if you, if you start to see that any of this is true, and don't believe it until you really look for yourself, then ask yourself, what does this all mean? And what does it mean to how I conduct my life? What does it mean to all of the marks of identity that I think this is who I am? And if I lose those marks of identity, who am I then? And what are the ramifications in terms of how I relate to my experience? Right? How does all of, how, all of the things that you thought were so important that need to be, you know, 
this particular way or that particular way, how do they stack up? And if we've got just a, um, a, a limited number of breaths that our life is, right? Each of us has a life that's X number of breaths. What are we going to do with it? And how are we going to spend it? Are we going to spend it in the habits of yesterday? Or are we going to meet every experience that comes to us totally fresh and totally new because it is? Even if it seems to be the very same experience that you had for all of your life, every single day, every moment is a new moment. It's a new process. It's a new experience. And can you meet it exactly how it is today and how it is in this moment? Or will you keep your life chained to the habits, to the identity that you formed whenever you formed it? And so it's not underestimating or denying or um, undercutting whatever your personal experience is, because of course that's part of the unfolding of life or the marks of identity that you feel or the belonging that you feel to particular communities or the hurts that you've experienced, or the joys that you've experienced. It's not negating any of that. But it's the ability to move forward into this moment and see exactly who you are right now. Not only qua the individual, but also as part of a whole community. And that's the community here, going out to the larger community where you live, going out into the community of humanity and going out into the community of the universe. Because we live in the context of all of that. And it's all changing and we're changing with it at every, in every moment. And so it behooves us to, re- to understand that so deeply that we're open in every moment to a new way of being, to a new way of understanding the world, to a new way of responding to how the world is right now. So I'll leave it there. Thank you. So if you have any comments or questions, I'd be happy to hear them. Yes, please. Could you tell me your name? Saida, hi. The Octavio Paz poem title? After. Do you want me to read it again? Oh, yes. <laughs> it's beautiful, isn't it? Yes. Am I going to be able to find it? 
lost my place. There you go. After chopping off all the arms that reached out to me, after boarding up all the windows and doors, after filling all the pits with poisoned water, after building my house on the rock of a no, inaccessible to flattery and fear, after hurling handfuls of silence and monosyllables of scorn at my loves, after forgetting my name and the name of my birthplace and the name of my race, after judging and sentencing myself to perpetual waiting and perpetual loneliness, I heard against the stones of my dungeon of syllogisms the humid, tender, insistent onset of spring. Hmm. He's a beauty. So I think So so let me see I, I, I you're trying to point to something let me see if I, if I let me see if I can get what you're trying to point to and I think what you're trying to what I hear you trying to point to and I may be wrong is that there's a way in which the physical reality of who we are the, the physical, the physicality of who we are seems to be so real. Yes? And that then we get hypnotized in a way by that, by the appear, apparent solidity of this body because it's so dense. The body is dense. And so it feels like, yes, you're really real. 
you're really permanently who you are. But you know what happens when you lose? I'm, I've always wondered about where the pounds go when you lose weight. Isn't that bizarre? You know, they didn't drop off, right? They didn't kind of come out into a lump somewhere. Right? It's very bizarre. So how solid is that? Right? I, I was listening to the radio when I was coming on my way, and they were talking, NPR had a whole thing on a, a school where they take kids who are really overweight, and they put them in a regimen, etc. And I was thinking, and somebody said, I lost 65 pounds. And I thought, where did it go? <laughs> I lost 65 pounds. Well, could you find them? You know, where did it go? Where did it go? I, has anybody ever said? Right? It's not visible anymore. But it was, it seemed like so real. Didn't it? You know, when those 65 pounds are on that child, it probably looked really real. Right? <laughs> Don't you think? Right? So how real is that? So if we, you know, if we keep understanding that, looking that way, then, you know, our sh- it shifts. It shifts our understanding of what's, you know, just perception. And remember that thing in college, you know, or, or in school where they showed you this picture of two vases? And then your perception shifts, and it actually is two per, two profiles. Do you remember that in like you know just you know basic psychology one hundred and one? So which is it? Is it the profiles or is it the vase? Is it the two vases? You know, and is this child an obese child, or is this child a thin child? Right? But it's, it's, it's great. It's really great to notice that. It's great to notice how our perception fools us and how we believe it. And it, you know, it happens on all kinds of different levels. So it happens on an individual level. It happens person to person when we're in relationship with people. Right? Somebody says something, you swear to God they've said you know, a certain thing or that they meant a certain thing, and you, you then live your life, you know, you cut them off, you don't ever want to speak to them again. And meanwhile, they meant something completely different, right? But you are convinced that that's, what, that's what's true, that, because that's what you think you heard. How often do we do that? So, you know, there's a Bankai, who was a Zen master, said, don't side with yourself. (laughs) I love that. Don't side with yourself. Because we have these perceptions that we get very convinced about, and then they turn out to be completely mistaken. 
or we take physicality to be real. And on, on, yes, and on one level, it's certainly real. That child had that 65 pounds on that body. No question about it. But now it's gone. Who's the child? So, so look, look. Look at what you're believing. And look at how you're siding with yourself. And look and see what's possible to shift. Because when we side with ourselves, we suffer. We do. So do we want to suffer? Which, which is more important, <laughs> the siding with ourselves or the ending of suffering? But even though there are certain elements of life that are beyond your control, your intentions are not beyond your control. And how you relate to, so experience may be beyond your control, right? But how, so this yoga retreat, it was in Florida. And it was hot. So some people wanted the air conditioning on, and some people didn't. Some people wanted the windows open. And I watched this tugging going back and forth, back and forth, right? Turn off the damn air conditioning. Oh, no, let's keep the... How we relate to experience, you know, and, and at the same time, it was possible for some of us to be happy however it was. Right? So our relationship to what comes our way may not be within our control. But how we relate to that experience, even if it's how we relate to uncertainty, is, is, is within our control. But the outcome of that is not within our control. Do you see what I'm saying? So... What we can change is our intention and how we relate to what's coming our way. What happens then is not within our control. So, it, so it's, a, it's a kind of um, uh, uh, breathing in and breathing out, right? So this is within our control, that's not within our control. This is within our control, that's not within our control. So we're moving back and forth, back and forth. But the, so the teaching is not Oh, everything is not within my control. 
or everything is within my control. It's not that. It's that we're being taught to look, to see, to understand how things are. So that whatever, however our relationship is to it, it's appropriate. And it's appropriate because we actually are seeing things clearly. That's vipassana, insight, isn't a practice. It's a result of our practice. So when we call it vipassana meditation, we get some instructions about how to let the mind calm down and be ga- the energy of the mind is gathered to be in this present moment. Why is, why is that? What's that instruction about? It's so that the more we bring the energies in, the more the mind settles. The more the mind settles, the more clearly it sees. The more clearly it sees, the less deluded it is. Right? We're full of delusion. And, we, and, you know, the problem with delusion is we don't know when we're deluded. Right? Right? Isn't that true? So, so we're looking to see, oh, can I be clear? Can I be clear? Can I be clear? Can I see? Can I be here with wisdom? Can I understand what's actually happening? Because if I truly understand in a very elemental way, in a very essential way, what is true in this moment, then how I act will be appropriate. If I'm walking around in this fog, just deluded about what's actually going on, then I'm bumping into the furniture all the time, right? I'm upsetting people because I'm, you know, they're saying stuff, I'm not understanding what they're saying, so I'm answering in a way that, you know, is not what they're saying. I'm making a mess everywhere I'm going. But if I'm clear, There's a kind of elegance about that. There's a kind of beauty about that. There's a kind of dignity about it. And it's a process. It's a journey. It's not that we're going to move from this state of delusion to a state of perfect clarity in one small step. It's that as we practice more and more and the mind settles down more and more and we're consistent and we're constant, then the mind gets clearer and clearer and clearer. And from that clarity, we start to see. And from the seeing, we start to act. And, f- and when we act, we're not bumping into the furniture and bumping into everyone that's around us and making things worse, right? We're then acting from this place of the Brahma-viharas that we started with because, that, because we're, we're intending loving-kindness, we're intending sympathetic joy, we're intending compassion, we're intending equanimity. And we, it may not be completely within our control yet, but we're practicing it, we're practicing it, we're seeing and we're practicing. So just one last comment, yeah. So when we come together and practice, it creates a field of merit. And this field of merit in which we are all together and walking together, being together, affects the whole world. 
because who we are affects the world. And so we take the merit and rather than keeping it to ourselves, we give it away. We dedicate it to the good of all. And so wishing for the happiness, the well-being, the safety and the peace, the health and the ease and the freedom from suffering of all beings, we dedicate the merit of our practice to their awakening and to all of these qualities of happiness, safety, health, peace, ease and well-being, the freedom of all. And we are um, optimistic that whatever practice we do, whether it's solely, individually, or in our sangha together, our community together, that these fields of merit will continue to be generated and will uh, affect the whole net to which we all belong and out of which we cannot fall. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your practice. And may you have a very beautiful holiday season. Don't rush yourselves too much. Don't get yourselves too crazy about family. Enjoy the season of generosity and the season that originally was a season of real peace and joy. And see if you can, you can embody that so that everywhere you go, you will bring that into the field of existence. Have a really great new year, and I'll see you next year.